0: Well, good morning, you guys. Um, It's so good to be with you, and I just want to thank the band. How awesome was that worship set? Like, wow, that was amazing. so I, I recently started writing a book. Some of you know this. I've never written a book before. It's probably gonna go horribly, but I'm like taking a step out in faith and like one of the first things for me doing that was just like admitting it to myself and like telling other people, so then I'm like held accountable to do it. And I have to like deal with other people's expectations of me and all of that kind of fun stuff. So I'm writing, and as a result, I'm reading a lot more and uh the internet gods the overlords have discovered this about me and they're just like serving me book ads like nonstop now and it's all self-help which i don't know what they think of me <laughs> it's probably needed um but i uh it's funny because i've like kind of come to this realization just how like self-help lit has just exploded over the last decade or so. And so here are some of my favorite titles that I've come across recently. Uh, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived and Joyful Life. I came across that one on one of those blogs where they tell you how to make your house look like West Elm. Um, (laughs) Beautiful You, A Daily Guide to Radical Self-Acceptance. Yeah. (laughs) This, it gets better, super better. The power of living gamefully. Yeah? And then here is my personal favorite. The universe has your back. Yeah. Transform fear to faith. I know that I felt a lot better once I found out that the universe had my back. I don't know about you. Uh, I I was not aware of that previously. So, um, why has the self-help movement exploded this way? Well, I think that it is because even in a very secular age, even in a society that no longer believes in original sin, and so we have to blame shift everything to something external, so we're blaming the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, corporations, Islam, whatever it is that makes us feel better, even though we do that, there's something still within us that knows that, that we're part of the problem that there's something wrong internally. And so we are driven to change. There's this deep primal desire in each of us to change. Um, and even though we know that we were created in the image of God and in the language of the Old Testament and that we are made to be his and beautiful in his image, we know that we've something has gone wrong. Something has been warped along the way. And so... I think the question for most of us is not whether we need to change, but how. And for me anyway, and I know for a lot of the people I've talked with, self-help literature just doesn't cut it for us. And I'm not down on self-help at all. I read some of it, I find some of it really helpful, but it's just not enough. And for followers of Jesus, the process of discipleship, or I think put in like a more modern terminology, apprenticeship to Jesus, is really about closing that gap. We're in a series right now about practicing the way of Jesus and we're talking about what it means to be an apprentice to Jesus. Um, And and we've said that it means to order your life, to form your spirit around three goals. Let's see if we can get them up there. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Be with Jesus, be like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And Kevin has done a preaching on each of these goals over the last few weeks, Uh, but we're not done yet, because to live all of that out is gonna require change. And followers of Jesus are people who arrange their lives around transforming them into that image. you know, I think the, the, the issue is that a lot of us feel really stuck, though, right? We know that's, that's what we need, but we're stuck in pain from a family of origin, from traumatic experiences, addiction, patterns of relationship that are unhealthy, other ways of coping with life that aren't healthy, and, and so we really feel stuck. This is where intentional spiritual formation comes in. And it's important to note, I think, that spiritual formation is not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. We're all being formed in some way. Every day you wake up, you're being shaped into something. You're, you're becoming something. Uh, this concept is what we call unintentional spiritual formation. And, and we've said, uh, Kevin's talked over the last couple of weeks about how we're, we're really formed by four things. Our stories the stories we're told and that we tell ourselves in our head, habits, and relationships, and environment. The Christian tradition of discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus is intentional spiritual formation. It's, I think, better put, counter-formation, meaning that it has to counter or offset all of those things. So, counter to uh, the stories that were told by the world, we have teaching, Counter to our habits, we have spiritual practices. Counter to the relationships that we have, we have community. And counter to our environment, we have the Holy Spirit. The tradition of intentional spiritual formation as it has been created and practiced by the church and passed down is really wise, I think. Why? Because science tells us that people don't simply change by deciding to change. We don't just flip some sort of switch. We change by replacing one thing with another. One story with another, one habit with another, etc. So um, join with me uh, as we today talk a little bit about the first two of our intentional spiritual formation practices, teaching and practice. Let's start with our scripture reading. Our first scripture reading for the day is uh, from Mark chapter one, starting in verse 14. Uh, and just a little bit of context, Jesus was a rabbi, which in Hebrew just means teacher. Uh, and he was not the kind of teacher that was just teaching you about how to be your best self or deal with your crazy mother-in-law. Uh <laughs> That is not a commentary on Kevin's mom. She is lovely. Sorry. Uh, She's really sweet. Uh, uh, All of Jesus' teachings were set inside a much larger idea, and it's the kingdom of God, which sounds a little bit weird to our modern ears. Um, But have a look at this verse with me. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The central theme of Jesus' teaching, contrary to popular opinion, is not love. It is not liberation for the poor or the oppressed. It is not justice, although all of that is a part of Jesus' kingdom agenda. The central message was that the kingdom of God or put another way, the rule and reign of God was breaking in or breaking out over all of creation. And really what that means for us is that it is near, it is accessible to us. You have an open invite to this reality. The response that Jesus was looking for from the crowd was repent and believe. Repent and believe. The Greek word translated translated this way is really interesting. It more literally just means to change your mind. It's to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude. To repent is to reimagine your life from the ground up around this new reality, the kingdom of God. Beginning the process of discipleship or apprenticeship is what this is about. It's about redreaming a whole new way to be human around God's power and God's presence. And I think the reason that this notion is so powerful and so transformative is that our unintentional formation, the stories that we're told on, the day to, on a day-to-day basis, the practices that we engage in, center around the idea that ultimately I am on my own. The belief that in this world, the only power and the only presence that I can ultimately count on at the end of the day are my own. My power and my presence. And I think that's key. And while it's a sobering worldview, it naturally and very sensibly leads to a certain kind of life. It forms us in a certain way we develop a vision of what the good life looks like in this world, and we develop different coping mechanisms for dealing with the types of anxieties that that creates for us. We ask ourselves, what does it look like to live well in a world where I can ultimately depend only on myself and my own power and presence? And then the world offers us so many different answers to that question. We call that advertising. It's everybody saying, here's a version of the good life. Uh, and, and if you just buy this or do this or whatever, you're going you're gonna to get it right. And the problem is that you only have so much good life to live. You only have so much money in your bank account, so much time in a day, and so much attention to give to anything. And there's a vision of the good life based on about everything you can think of, materialism, minimalism, travel and adventure, whatever you can think of. And all of these visions compete for our attention, but they share the same thing in common, which is the belief, or maybe put better, the fear, that ultimately, I am alone, and I can rely only on myself. And this creates a great deal of anxiety for us, for which the world also offers us a plethora of answers, right? Whether it's relationships, power, Netflix, substance abuse, all sorts of things as coping mechanisms. And I think it's important to recognize that this worldview is very, very pervasive, and it's very persuasive. I recently came across something that emphasized for me how much this worldview is everywhere, and how convincing it is, and how early in life it begins to form us. I was, uh, my parents recently moved to DC to be around our um, little girl, and they were moving out of their house, and they found this box of like my old childhood mementos, which was filled with like the usual stuff your like ribbon from like the first grade spelling bee. Um, the report cards, you know, all that kind of stuff. Maybe a few cat figurines I collected. (laughs) You were nerds, too, as kids. Don't give me a hard time. Uh, And and as I'm going through this box, I came across evidence of eight-year-old Charla's good life, um, which I'm kind of embarrassed to share with you, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, So, I'm not making any of this up. I created a floor plan of the mansion that I hoped to one day own. Oh, you think that's done? (laughs) Um, There is a ballroom here um, with an emerald floor because I couldn't spell emerald Um, (laughs) there is also a bedroom for my handsome lover Tyler oh you know Tyler is such a 90's cool name he was uh, in this box I also found my old diary in which I describe him as A total babe. (laughs) I wish I was making this stuff up. Um, There is also, though, you'll be relieved to find a a chocolate factory. I had some priorities straight. um, And a residence, a separate residence, for my good friend Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal. I have dreams... Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's just like really funny evidence of an eight-year-old just gone totally wild with the dreams of the world, right? Um, but I think the really kind of sad or sobering thing about this is that if I were to draw for you my floor plan, that secret image I hold in my head today of the good life, I'm afraid that some of the priorities would be the same. And I think that I don't want to admit it to myself, and I don't want to admit it to you, but, you know, maybe that emerald floor might be some really fancy parquet wood, and, uh, you know, I might still really want to hang out with some people of incredible influence who make me feel really impressive and beautiful, and, of course, I already have the hot husband. Anyway, I'm just... (laughs) He messes with me all the time up here, you guys. I have to do it some. (laughs) Um, But I suspect I'm not the only person in this room with this issue. And the thing is, Jesus had a different vision of the good life, which he called the kingdom of God. He says, no, what you've been told is a lie. Your floor plan is not all wrong. It's not as glamorous as you think. It's not as fulfilling as you think. The kingdom of God is near. God is close. God's power is accessible. And God's priorities are the ones that matter. It gets into your head with an alternative version of the good life when you read the scriptures, particularly when you read the words of Jesus. But the thing is that it takes time to rewire our brains because the lies we believe are deeply embedded in our psyches. And this is what I think Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12 when after 11 chapters of really thick, heady teaching, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is Hebrew imagery. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship, so give God more than a couple of songs on Sunday. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is for his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For Paul, the first step to transformation is the renewal of the mind, and that is not a one-time act. It's an ongoing process of discipleship. In fact, Paul is really obsessed with this concept, and he returns to it over and over in his writings. And I think it's because he intuitively understands a concept that scientists now call neuroplasticity. I'm gonna geek out on you for just a minute. Um, (laughs) It's based on the scientific idea of Hebb's axiom, which is that neurons that fire together, wire together. I found this explanation from Dr. Kirk Thompson really helpful. Neurons that repeatedly activate in a particular pattern are statistically more likely to fire in that same pattern the more they are activated. So the more you think one thought, the more you think one pattern of thoughts, the more likely you are to think that way again. Your brain actually creates connections between those neurons. There's a network there now. He says, once the initial neurons in a network fire, there is a high probability that the related neurons will also activate and move along the same bioelectrical pathway to the end of that network. The more frequently those patterns have been fired, the more easily they will fire in the same pattern in the future. Okay, so for those of you who, like, heard the word bioelectrical and you were like, "Mm -hmm," um, This basically can be described as, like, why I can... Remember how to make spaghetti, which I make every week for my family, but I can't, I have to like get out the recipe book and look at my recipe that I only make for Thanksgiving, which is really good and that I know and I've made before, but I haven't made that often. A good analogy, I think, for this is hiking through a jungle. So when you think of a thought or a pattern of thoughts, it's like you're hiking through the jungle, like cutting through cutting I don't know. That's how I always envisioned myself, cutting through a jungle. <laughs> what is this motion? Uh, anyway, cutting through a jungle. And as you go, the path is a little clearer. And if you travel that path again, you're going to cut through and, and clear the path even more. And if you do it a third and a fourth and a fifth and a tenth time, clearer, clearer, clearer. And then at some point, when you come to that part of the jungle, when you come to that part of your thought life, you're just going to automatically take that path without even thinking about it. It's just going to, you're just going to get right on it and go on it, no matter whether it takes you where you want to go, no matter whether it's a dangerous path, no matter whether there's a better route, because that's now what you are at a biomechanical level wired to do. This neurological mapping is a good thing and a bad thing. It's the reason that I can remember how to get to work, say, every day without consulting my map, and also the reason that I accidentally go to work when i meant to go get my hair done on a Saturday, right? It's like I just went down that path in the jungle, I don't know. Um, The more you think one thought or pattern of thoughts, you're going to do it again. And your brain creates a network, creates those connections, and I think you—you you just the, the only way to really get off of this is based on something called the concept of neuroplasticity, which is it's good news. It's that you can't, your, your brain has plasticity to it. You, you can change things, but it's not going to happen immediately. You have to rethink and rethink and rethink and rethink. That's why we spend so much time teaching on Sundays, and why teaching is such a big part of the Christian tradition, I think. It's also why we urge you to spend so much time reading scripture on your weekdays. We're rewiring our brains, replacing the stories and the patterns of thought that have taken hold of them. So how do we rewire our brains through teaching? For those of you who are very practical, how has the church done this? Reading the Bible in large chunks, a book at a time, half a book at a time, and in small chunks, reading smaller pieces, really thoughtfully and prayerfully, meditating on the word. And I cannot urge you, I can't say how important it is to do that on a regular basis. Reading good books, trying to... Read about the way of Jesus. Uh, Hear hear other people reimagining the world and what it looks like in the kingdom. Memorizing scripture, committing it to your heart so that you have it with you. Finding a mentor, someone who can speak truth over you. And if you can't find a living mentor, a dead one will do. Go to a bookstore. And if you really hate reading definitely make sure you're involved in a community group where people are at least speaking truth over you on a regular basis. And then finally, Sunday teaching, and I'm going to go on a little rant here, and I swear to you that Kevin did not pay me to do this. Um, But I think that the concept of neuroplasticity is why it is so important to regularly and actively participate in church and attend services, because I have some friends who will tell me like, well, I don't really go to church. I just listen to some podcasts from my favorite pastors and like some inspirational stuff online, which is great. The table has a podcast. I encourage you to listen to it. It's it's really great. But the thing about coming to church is that we, we all have a strong tendency to think the same thoughts and consider the same subjects from the same people all the time. And when we participate fully in a church community and we attend the services regularly, we do not have control over what message we're going to hear every Sunday. And we're confronted by someone who gives us an alternative message, who knows us, loves us, knows how we think, understands our community, and who confronts us prayerfully with an alternative story of the gospel. Okay, rant over. Um, So the continual rewiring of our brains, of our imagination, through teaching is the first step in transformation, and it's really important, but it is not the last, and it's not where we're going to stop today, because I think if we stopped there, it would reinforce a really unhealthy notion um, that many of us have, which is that we can think our way to Christ-likeness. And a lot of people stop here, right? We come to church, we read the Bible a little bit, we read a good book now and then, but that's kind of the end point. And People always stall out in transformation because you cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. Say that with me. You cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. Oh, I feel like a (laughs) self-help guru. I got you to talk with me. Um, Maybe my book will work out. I don't know. Um, (laughs) So uh, have you ever come to church on Sunday and been really inspired to change something about your life, maybe the worship or the message really inspired you, and then you leave, and like by Monday afternoon, you've completely forgotten the thing, and you're just like back to living life as normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> so your problem there is not knowledge, right? You have the knowledge. Your problem is that information transfer alone does not create transformation because knowing something is not the same thing as doing it and further yet doing something is not the same thing as wanting to do it that's why for all of us there's a massive gap between what we want to do and still yet between what we want to but what we do and what we want to do right this is where the second step of intentional spiritual formation comes in Uh, Let's turn to our second scripture reading, Matthew 7, verse 24. This is the tail end to what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is a really important, formative collection of Jesus' teachings. And it's really a haunting way to end a sermon. Listen to this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, That's a hard ending to a sermon. No pep talk, no inspiration. I'm considering ending my sermon today that way. Um, and it's not just here that Jesus emphasizes the central role of practice. I think of this iconic line in Luke 8 where he says, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Over and over, Jesus and the writers of the New Testament emphasize that teaching has to lead to practice. You see, where the purpose of teaching is to counter the thoughts, the stories, the imagination that we have going on in our minds, and what we believe about the world, practice is intended to counter our habits. Because what we do on a regular basis is who we become. We are the cumulative effect of all of our habits, just the normal, everyday habits, what we do when we wake up in the morning, our relationship to our email and phone, our social media accounts, how we spend our evenings and weekends. Here's why. Let's talk just a little bit more about the brain. Your habits get into you not through the prefrontal cortex, like teaching does, but through what we call the limbic system. I think that really the limbic system is what the writers of the Bible would call the heart. Here's a good working definition of the heart. The fulcrum of your most fundamental longings, a visceral subconscious orientation to the world. Put another way, it's like the the direction of your longing and desire. Because our heart is like an engine driving us forward towards some kind of vision. In our mind's eye of what the good life is. We are what we want, and our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which all of our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, so scripture counsels above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. And here's the thing. My heart, my limbic system, is shaped and formed slowly by what I do through my practices, through my habits. That vision of the good life that the world has given me takes hold of me in a visceral, subconscious, semi-conscious kind of way. What you do does something to you. I think the perfect example of this is my experience with Christmas gifts. Um, I generally do not like shopping for clothes. I particularly don't like to go into stores and shop for clothes. I don't like to try things on. They don't fit. The lights in those rooms always make me look like I'm really sickly. And I'd like to think that in reality, I don't really look like that. Um, But... But occasionally like I have to think about what I'm going to wear and particularly at Christmas time my family wants a Christmas list from me and so this is the perfect time to like brush up on my wardrobe and every year I sit and stare blankly at the computer and I cannot think of anything that I want like I know when I've gotten dressed in the mornings occasionally I've thought oh I could really use like a black belt, but I can't remember what that thing is now, right? And so, after a while, I, like, shop around a little bit on the internet, and I manage to come up with a meager list of things that I want, and my family buys me some really nice gifts for Christmas, and they're great and useful. And you would think that I would be really happy after that. But the thing is that the week after Christmas is, like, the least content week of the year for me, and I do the most shopping in that week that I do all year. Why? Well, because, you know, I got that new pair of shoes, and it was red, and now I really need a red purse to go with it, or whatever. I probably wouldn't do that. That'd be a lot of red. Um, (laughs) But you get my my idea. Or, like, I got that really nice pair of yoga pants from my mom, and they fit me so well, and they're going to go out of stock, and so I better get them in the other color right now, right? I did that, actually. (laughs) Um... So, I go out shopping, and then I see a pair of jeans, and it reminds me how ratty my jeans look and how they kind of don't really fit me that well anymore, and by the end of the day, they kind of sag, and it's unfortunate. And all of a sudden, I have this list of, like, 20 things that I didn't even know existed a week ago, and I have to have them all. So this year, I started my Christmas list the week after Christmas. Sick, right? (laughs) Yeah. We are the cumulative effect of our habits, just the normal, ordinary habits. And the crazy thing is that when you do something, you want to do it more. When you watch Netflix, you want to watch Netflix. When you eat pizza, you want to eat pizza. The more you gossip, the more you want to gossip. What you do does something to you. It shapes your loves and your longings. We're not just shopping or watching Netflix. We're shaping our hearts. And so you have to ask the question, what or who is it that I love, in practice and in habit? Because how you and I answer that question will define us. Because what we love has a far greater influence on our behavior than what we know. So one of the primary tasks of discipleship is to repoint our hearts. It's to form those visceral, semi-conscious loves, longings, and desires in the right direction. We have to learn how to recalibrate our heart. That's why teaching and practice have to go hand in hand. Teaching focuses on our imaginations, on our visions of the good life. Practice focuses on our behavior and what we love. Now, when I say practice, I have three kinds of practice in mind. I have practices based on the lifestyle of Jesus. These are usually called something like the spiritual disciplines in a lot of books. They're things like silence, solitude, fasting, reading the Bible, scripture memorization, coming to church, Sabbath, simple living. There's also practices based on the teachings of Jesus. So think of the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies, don't worry, et cetera, et cetera. And practices based on the mission and ministry of Jesus. Think of that list of 10 things that Kevin taught about last week. Preaching the gospel, teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons, so on. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate our minds and our hearts, to be attentive to and intentional, not just about what we know, but also about what we love. It's about, it's more about hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants and desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after what God hungers and thirsts for. It's to to desire a world where God is all in all, the kingdom of God. Practice is key because we have to want that vision. It's not enough to know it. We have to want it deep in our beings. So now I'm going to shift to something a little more pragmatic before I wrap up. I have one ask of you in the coming week. Do a habit audit. Think about the rituals, routines, and habits that make up your daily life. Consider your schedule, your budget, how you spend your weekend, your relationship to your phone, all that basic stuff, right? And what I want you to do if you're up for it this week is just maybe take out a pen and paper, a journal, start an Evernote file, whatever makes you comfortable, and every night before you go to sleep, just take five or 10 minutes, and start to write out your habits. Write out the things that you do on a regular basis, and then the really tricky part is, I want you to see if you can make a connection between your habits and what they're doing to your heart. Okay, this is a different connection than what is right and wrong, what is ethical and unethical, what I can get away with, what I can't get away with. It's about what they're doing to my heart. This is where prayer and community come in. They're very helpful when we're discerning this kind of thing. Cut out that habit and replace it with a practice of Jesus. Breaking a habit is all about replacement, right? We're going to put one, one habit in place of another. So right now, I'm gonna put, we're going to put a long list of the practices of Jesus on the screen, I hope that reflect what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. And I encourage you to pull out your phones and just take a, take a screenshot of them. And then once you've identified the habit that you are going to cut out, take a look at this list and really consider what habit can I replace that with that will counterform me, that will change and reshape my heart. And if you're the kind of person like me who really intends to do this and you will forget, like, right after you walk out of here because you have to go get brunch and then by the time you're done, it's just gone. Set an alarm. Put something on your calendar, whatever you have to do. But take time this week to do a habit audit. Consider how you're forming your heart. And then, you know, maybe after a couple of weeks, try another habit and then another and then another. Determine how long you're going to cut out this habit. Is it a week? Is it... A month, six months, whatever makes sense for you. Just give it a try and see what happens to your heart. See if your loves and longings and desires begin to be shaped, begin to be formed like Jesus. Practicing the way of Jesus is hard. It's about reforming our minds and our hearts and reshaping our thoughts and behaviors. It's about aligning our thoughts and loves with the longings of Jesus Jesus and with his loves. It's about desiring what God desires, hungering what God hungers for. This entire sermon series is about reforming our lives around one radical notion that the kingdom of God is near, that we are not alone, that we don't have to rely only on our own strength and only on our own presence but that we can live life with the freedom of knowing that we have the promise of God's presence and God's power. The lie is that you are alone, but the truth is that God is with you and God is for you. So let's return to Paul's words once more. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Pray with me. God, we ask you to reform our hearts, reshape our loves, Make us hunger and thirst for what you hunger and thirst for. Make us care and consider the things that you care about and consider. Shape us to spend time with those you spend time with. Be with us this week as we work on reforming our hearts to be like yours. Form us in your image.